Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. As we continue to make our way through 1 Samuel, we'll be in chapter 2, verses 11 through 26. And as you're turning there, we invite any of our children who will be participating in our children's class this morning to make your way there to that room where our volunteers will be there to greet you there at the back and instruct you in God's Word this morning. Again, we this morning are in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 through 26. So let me read our passage for us this morning. And then we will pause and pray and ask for the Lord's help. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the mercies you have poured out on us. It's already happened this morning. You have shown great patience and and long-suffering with us, and we know that it's only because of what Christ has done in our place. So, Father, we are gathered here this morning solely and totally, completely relying on the mercy and grace you have shown us in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for your Spirit that you have sent to dwell in us. And every Sunday, Father, we lean on that promise that you intend 
to be at work in us through the truth of your word, by the power of your spirit. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that once again this morning. Father, there are weighty things we need to meditate on and learn from in this passage this morning. And so I pray even now that you would be preparing our hearts and our minds to receive what your word intends to teach us. And we pray that we would be changed by it and that you would be glorified in it. And so, Father, I pray that you would, as we pray every week, that you would guide my words, allow me to speak only what is true of you and true of your word for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just as a reminder here at the start, that the time period of 1 Samuel comes right on the hills of the book of Judges. And that's relevant because the last line of the book of Judges, we mentioned this when we started 1 Samuel, but just to say it again, the last verse of the book of Judges says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what we're going to see in this passage, this section of chapter 2, is when it says everyone, it meant just about everyone, including the priests, including the religious leaders in that time in the house of the Lord at Shiloh. They were wicked, they were evil, and they were corrupt. But here's, here's the question that's forced upon us as we reflect on this point in Israel's history and what's happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 2. What was God doing while the religious leaders of the day were doing what was right in their own eyes? What was God doing while these religious leaders were doing what was right in their own eyes? Was he sitting back with indifference? Was he simply ignoring his people? Furthermore, we should ask ourselves, how should God's people respond when this is happening? How how do God's people respond when they see spiritual leaders or in our context, pastors failing morally right in front of their eyes? I mean, after all, this is not just a historical, ancient problem. It's a modern day reality. I could spend the rest of this morning telling you heartbreaking story after heartbreaking story of both well-known and relatively unknown pastors and Christian leaders who have disqualified themselves because of their moral failures and corruption. The list is long. Men who have walked away from the faith, who have embraced homosexuality, who have rejected the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, Leaders who have abused men, women, and children have had affairs that they refuse to repent of, who have abused their wives, who have embezzled money, manipulated their congregations, and abused their authority. This is not a solely historical problem. So how do we respond when we hear these stories? For some that I know of, it makes them want to give up on the church altogether and just walk away and be done with it and and rid their hands of it altogether because they can't handle the hypocrisy anymore. They become bitter and suspicious of all leaders who have spiritual authority. Now, I want to be clear, though, if if you were in a church where someone was being abusive and they refused to repent and the church didn't remove them, you should leave that church. That doesn't mean one should give up on the church altogether. So... What is the right response to these kinds of things? I just I want you to feel how relevant this text is for us this morning, because I believe it will help us know how we are to navigate these kind of issues, because this passage shows us and reminds us that even in the midst of the moral corruption of the leaders of God's people, God is still at work, and he's still faithful, that he hasn't 
given up, even in the midst of of leaders who are abusing their position and they're corrupt and they're self-serving, I think if this passage can just help us see and remind us that God is still sovereign and good and kind and patient and that we can rest in His good, kind, and sovereign, capable hands, even when spiritual leaders may fail, it will keep us from turning our backs on His church. And what this passage shows us is that God remains faithful even in the midst of unfaithful leadership. God remains faithful even in the midst of unfaithful leadership. In other words, the unfaithfulness of those in positions of spiritual authority are not a reflection of God's unfaithfulness. Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.13 reminds us if we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And we're able to see this almost immediately in verse 11, even before we get into the details, right there in verse 11, before we read about the corruption of Hophni and Phinehas, what we see in verse 11, Elkanah goes home to Ramah and the boy, namely Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. That feels like it could be a quick throwaway verse that you just skip over, but what the author of Samuel is reminding us of, what God is reminding us of, is even here at the start, Even in the midst of this corruption, God already has a man he's making ready, or a boy who will be a man, that he is making ready for the sake of his people. And we're going to see that throughout this passage, this intentional contrast between God raising up Samuel and the corruption of Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. So what I want us to see this morning is four ways that God remains faithful even in the midst of unfaithful leadership. Four ways that God remains faithful even in the midst of unfaithful leadership. And I made these really brief so that we could remember them. God sees, God cares, God judges, and God provides. God sees, He cares, He judges, and He provides. So let's just work through those one at a time. First, God sees. Look with me again at verses 11 through 17. And in fact, I want us to skip all the way to verse 17 and start at the end. Verse 17 says, Thus the sins of the young men, namely Hophni and Phinehas and the other priests who were doing their bidding, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Their sin was very great in the sight of the Lord. That word sight is sometimes translated as very great before the Lord, in the face of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord. In other words, they were doing this in the house of the Lord, before the Lord, and he saw it all. God was not ignorant or unaware of what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. This is so important for us to know. It's not as if God was hiding off in a dark corner somewhere, not knowing what was happening. This was done before the sight of the Lord. He was aware of what was occurring. And this is important for us to understand here at the start because verses 12 through 17 recount just how incredibly wicked and corrupt these religious leaders were. And it's tempting to think God is nowhere to be found, but he's there and he sees it all. And so let's just be sure we we move through 11 through 17, namely 12 through 17, and, and see exactly what it is that God saw by looking at just how corrupt Hophni and Phinehas and these other priests serving under them actually were. So it starts right off there in verse 12 and gives a condemning 
powerfully condemning statement of who these men are. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. This word worthless is going to be used to describe different people a number of times throughout 1 Samuel. They were worthless people. And on top of that, they did not know the Lord. Here they are serving at the altar in the house of the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, and they didn't even know him. They did not know him. They had no understanding or affection or faith in the living God. And of course, this is a, this is a dramatic contrast to the young boy Samuel that we saw in verse 11, who, who though he doesn't fully know the Lord, right? We're going to find that out in chapter 3, that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, but Samuel was growing. He was there in the presence of the Lord. He was ministering to the Lord. He was working on behalf of the Lord. And yet you turn one verse over and Hophni and Phinehas don't even know him and they are worthless people. They don't know the Lord, yet their job, their very job was to help people approach the living God. And they didn't even know him. And then verses 13 and 14 tell us about this ungodly ritual they had established where people would come to offer a sacrifice and they would take this three-pronged fork and just randomly stab it in a pot like, you know, just luck of the draw. Whatever came out, hey, that's ours. Too bad. This belongs to us. And what's staggering is it says they they would do this. They would stab that three-pronged fork into this pot or kettle or cauldron, whatever it was the meat was boiling in, and whatever came out belonged to them, and they took it away from the sacrifice that belonged to God. And, and listen to what it says at the end of verse 14. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there, all of them. They didn't do this occasionally. They didn't do this sometimes. It was their continual practice. Every sacrifice, they were taking advantage of it. And then if, as if that wasn't bad enough, verses 15 and 16 pile on even more. That's why the word moreover is there. It's saying like, as if that wasn't enough, moreover, this is also what they would do before the fat was even burned. Now, pause there. The reason that's significant it's because the fat of the animal that was to be sacrificed on the altar, that was to be set apart specifically for the Lord. Leviticus had laws concerning the fact that the priests were free to eat of for themselves certain portions of the sacrifice. The Levites weren't allowed to have cattle and fields. And so this is how God provided for the priest who would serve at his temple. There were specific laws. The priests were allowed to take certain parts of the sacrifice and not others, and that's how they provided for themselves and their families. But certainly not the fat. That was God's. It was a pleasing aroma to him. And that's why the author says before the fat was even burned, they would come and they would say to the man who was offering the sacrifice, give us the meat to roast. And if they refused to give it over, that's why the people in verse 16 say, well, let us at least burn the fat first. If you're going to corrupt us, at least let us give this to the Lord. And Hophni and Phinehas would say no. And they would forcibly, abusively rip it out of their hands and take it from them for themselves. That is who these men are. These are men who are supposed to be helping God's people obey his word by offering sacrifices carefully prepared on the altar to atone for their sins. The altar was to be a place of recognition of one's sinfulness and laying the sacrifice on the altar saying, blood must be spilled in my place. I'm pursuing forgiveness from the Lord for the sins that I have committed against his people. And Hophni and Phinehas cut it off at the legs. 
before they could even put the sacrifice on the altar. These were wicked, evil, self-serving, worthless men who were only concerned with serving themselves. They had complete indifference and impunity. They turned the worship of God's people into an opportunity to serve themselves and their own desires. It is corrupt at the deepest levels, which is why verse 17 says, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. It was very great in the sight of the Lord for because the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt, with disrespect, with disregard, with indifference to the holiness of the moment that they were supposed to be leading God's people in. It was egregiously sinful and it was done in the sight of the Lord. There was no escaping his watchful eye. Many may think they're getting away with their sinful manipulation of God's people, but he sees every act of greed and self-serving pleasure and deception and manipulation. So I just say to all of us as a reminder this morning that, that in our modern day, that to every level of confidence I can muster, I say to you that every health and wealth pastor, preacher who's praying on those desperate for healing and desperate for financial stability and desperate to be right with God, the Lord sees what they're doing. He knows it. It is not hidden from his sight. He is not ignoring it. But what he is doing is waiting for the right time to hold them accountable because he sees it all. And that day will come sooner or later because he sees it and he knows it. There is not one single corrupt, manipulative, abusive, godless, deceptive spiritual leader or pastor who will get away with what they have done to God's people because he sees it all. And it would be easy to stand here and point fingers at everybody else and talk about them, but it's also a reminder for me and for the elders of this church that the Lord sees us. He sees our hearts. He knows our motives. And may that burden and that weight and that reality keep me and the other elders and even the staff of this church from ever contemplating, using, abusing, or manipulating God's people for personal gain. He sees it and he knows it. But even in the midst of such terrible, corrupt leadership, what I want you to see is that God is still caring for his people. He still cares. So that's the second way we see God's faithfulness. God cares. Look with me at verses 18 through 21. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So right there at the beginning of verse 18, again, we have this terrible, wicked corruption of Hophni and Phinehas, and then it immediately turns to verse 18 and says, but Samuel, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. And, and even this entire section, verses 18 through 21, is sandwiched by the faithfulness of Samuel. You see verse 18, he's ministering before the Lord. And you see at the end of verse 21, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. He's even already wearing, it says in verse 18, a boy, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. That's the attire of the priest. Now Samuel's not a priest, but it's the author's way of saying, he's coming. I'm making him ready. Yes, these men are corrupt, but I am preparing someone for the sake of my people. And even in the midst of, of the corruption, in this quiet way, this doesn't have a lot of attention, there in the house of the Lord, this boy born to the common woman, Hannah, is being raised up by God for his people. God hasn't given up on his faithfulness. He's continuing to care 
for his people, about raising up a leader to call them back to himself. But that's not the only way God is at work to show that he is still caring for his people. I want you to notice what's happening in verses 19 through 21. In many ways, 19 through 21 seems out of place. It doesn't make a lot of sense right here in the middle of the passage about raising up Samuel and the corruption of Hophni and Phinehas and even their father Eli. And yet here we're told about how Hannah would continue to come year by year. Elkanah would come faithfully continuing to offer the yearly sacrifice. And when he would come, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and would say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So she's continuing to benefit from the blessing of God based on the prayer that she made earlier in chapter 1. And they would return home. And verse 21 says that the Lord indeed continued to visit Hannah and she conceived more children, three sons and two daughters, five more children in addition to Samuel. So, So why are we told this in the middle of this passage? Well, I remind you, what it said about what Hophni and Phinehas were doing at the end of verse 14. They did this stabbing of the meat in the pot, corrupting the worship of God's people to everyone who came there. And what does verse 19 tell us? Elkanah every year kept coming to offer the sacrifice. In other words, there is little doubt that this happened to Elkanah, that when he offered his sacrifice, they took it away. Maybe he was one of the ones from whom it was taken by force. He certainly was one of the ones that they stabbed the fork into the pot and took a portion out of it for themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but at some point I would quit, (laughs) right? I would just quit coming. You corrupt, evil, wicked leaders. Every year I come and try to make this sacrifice, and this is what you do to me every single year. But Elkanah knew what God had called him to do, and he wasn't going to quit. And he kept coming year after year, after year, after year. And not only that, these corrupt leaders could not prevent Elkanah's sacrifice from being accepted by the Lord. Not as if they took the sacrifice away and and God said to Elkanah, well, look, they've gotten in the way. I can't bless you. No, what, what did he do? What did God do for Elkanah and Hannah? Even though these men literally corrupted the very sacrifice Elkanah was willing to lay on the altar, God did not turn his back on those who pursued him with faithfulness. He kept pouring out his blessings on them, and he gave Hannah five more children. There's no corruption of any leader that can keep God from being faithful to his people, and there's no corruption from any leader that should keep you from being faithful to our God. That's what verses 18 through 21 remind us and say to us, that God continues to care for us, even in the midst of dark days like this, even when the leaders are corrupt and evil, He continues to care and he sees the faithfulness of his people, even if it feels like the corruption of the leaders are overshadowing it. So when we see this happening in the church, and you will see it happen, Lord willing, not this church, but I say church, big picture, it's going to happen. Just remind you that you should not conclude that God is done with his church. You should not conclude that God is indifferent to his church. You should not conclude that your response to that should be giving up on the work of God through the local gathering of his people. He is continuing to care for those who seek after him, even if those who are so-called spiritual leaders have turned their backs on him. God sees and God cares. And that brings us to the third way we see God's faithfulness. God judges. God will judge 
these men. God will judge these leaders. Look with me at verses 22 to 25. And even before we get to the details of this particular section, I want to be sure you you see the hints that a significant amount of time has transpired. And this is relevant. This is relevant. A significant amount of time has transpired. We see that in a few different ways. One, we're told in verse 19 that, that Elkanah would come up each year, that this was an ongoing thing that was happening year by year. They were continuing to come. So this was not one year. This was a number of years that have transpired. So that's hint number one. Hint number two is the Lord had visited Hannah. She conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. That doesn't happen quickly, right? So that's at a minimum five years, right? At a minimum. This is probably more like eight to 10 years, right? That this is happening. This is a long period of time that has passed by. And of course, we also see at the end of verse 21, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Time is passing. Samuel's growing. He's getting older. And then here at the beginning of verse 22, now Eli was very old. Again, time transpiring. And he kept hearing. He kept on hearing. Now, the reason this is significant, this passage started seemingly had to be because of all the reasons I just gave you years ago. Hophni and Phinehas are doing this year after year, after year, after year, on and on and on and on. And it even tells us in verse 22, Eli kept hearing about it. He kept hearing what they were doing to Israel. And and not only what they were doing that we've already recounted, but verse 22 adds to it. It wasn't just what they were doing with the sacrifices. On top of that, verse 22 says they were laying with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Corruption on top of corruption on top of corruption and godlessness. And Eli kept on hearing about it. And this is the failure of Eli. This is the corruption of Eli because he had every authority in the world given to him to remove them from their position. And not once, year after year after year, he kept on hearing and kept on hearing and kept on hearing it, it almost feels like the only reason he said something is because he got tired of people telling him about it. But finally, finally, after many, many years, he says something to them. Now, he should have removed them. So let's not give Eli too much credit. <laughs> but he does. He does say truth to them. So let's be thankful for that. And this is what Eli says to them, beginning in verse 23. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Now listen to verse 25. There is an unspeakable weight to almost every word of verse 25. He says to them, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So I want to take verse 25, one section at a time. So let's first begin with what Eli says to his sons. And then we will look at the last half, which is the author of Samuel's comments about their lack of response. So what Eli says at the first half of verse 25 is, If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? It seems to what Eli is getting at is the reality that in the Old Testament law, God himself provided a way 
that he himself, that God himself can mediate when people sin against each other. You could offer sacrifices on the altar. You could uh, pay restitution. There were ways of being reconciled to uh, God's people when you sinned against them. And God would forgive. We often think of, you know, the Old Testament is talking about the God of wrath, and it certainly includes that, and so does the New Testament, by the way. But in Leviticus, in the law, it would talk about these sacrifices that people were to offer. And at the end of the summary uh, or the commands of the sacrifice, it would say, and the Lord forgave them of their sins. The Lord showed them mercy. He provided a way. He would mediate for them. But Eli says, but if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? I think this is what the Old Testament often refers to as high-handed sins, meaning sins against God that were done in defiance of the living God. We see this in Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 and 31. It says this, But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or foreigner, blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel. That means executed must be cut off from the people of Israel because they have despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. They must surely be cut off. Listen to this. Their guilt remains on them. In other words, Eli is saying to his sons that if they sin against another man, God has a mediation. He has a way to be reconciled. But if you defiantly continue with disdain and contempt to sin against the living God, there is no one to intercede for you, Hophni and Phinehas. Even so, it seems that there is hope in Eli's words. He is obviously saying this to them because he hopes they will repent and that they will turn away from their sinful actions of laying with the women at the entrance to the tent, of robbing the sacrifice from God's people. That's what he desires to happen. But listen to the conclusion at the end of verse 25. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. This is a place in God's word, as with so many other places, that it's so important that we pay close attention to the exact words that are being said and the order that they're said in. Grammar defines theology. Verse 25 does not say, I want to be really clear about this. Verse 25 does not say it was the will of the Lord to put them to death because they would not listen to the voice of their father. It's turned around the other direction. They would not listen to the voice of their father for because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. In other words, God's sovereignty extends to their inability to heed the rebuke of their father. Let me put plainly what verse 25 is saying. God did not give Hophni and Phinehas the gift of repentance. He held it back from them because it was his desire to bring his final judgment on them and put them to death. That is what verse 25 plainly and clearly says to us. Which means, by the way, that any time someone repents of their sins, including when you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, and when I repented of my sins and trusted in Christ, when that happens, it's not because of our intelligence or the strength of our will or the power of our desires to be repented. It is because God has graciously granted us repentance. It is a gift from him, a gracious and merciful gift that he gives. The only reason you or I or anyone else comes to repentance is because the Lord in his gracious freedom opens our blind eyes, removes our heart of stone, and gives us a heart of flesh and allows us to see the glories of Christ. Now, you may be thinking that's a radical conclusion to draw based on one half of one verse 
in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But what 1 Samuel 2.25 says clearly, though maybe one would argue it only implies it, is said without question in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. So, so why do we gently correct? Because we hope that God will grant them, give them repentance. It is a gift of God. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance, according to Scripture, is a gracious and merciful gift from a holy God that frees us from darkness and allows us to see our sin and our wickedness and our rebellion and gives us the desire to turn away from it and turn toward our gracious God. And it is that gift of repentance that verse 25 says God refused to give to Hophni and Phinehas. They did not listen to their father. Why? For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. But I want to make clear, Hophni and Phinehas were fully deserving of the judgment that God has declared over them. For years and years, for years on end, without sorrow, without repentance, without any tinge of guilt, they abused, manipulated, deceived God's people over and over and over again. It was their choice. They fully desired to do what they did. And therefore, God brought his judgment on them. He allowed them to spiral deeper and deeper and deeper into their sin and rebellion. Look, this is the exact pattern that uh, God tells us about in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, he tells us there, when people reject the clear evidence of God, when they turn their back on him, that he will give them over to their sin over and over and over again. Romans 1 verse 24, he gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. 126, he gave them over uh, to a dishonorable passions. Romans 1 28, he gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And the spiral went farther and farther and farther down, giving people over to their sin. It's an act of God's judgment and wrath against them until they find themselves at the bottom of the spiral, which is where Hophni and Phinehas have found themselves. And the darkness and corruption of their heart, year after year after year, they are at the end of the rope. And God is done with them. And he will not grant them repentance. The most helpful paragraph I read on this verse comes from commentary from Del Ralph Davis. And I want to read it in its entirety. I rarely read long quotes, but I want to read this one. Quote, Be careful of your response to such teaching. Some of you may become Yahweh's persecutors alleging he is deficient in mercy. Others may be intellectually curious about the mechanics of hardening. At what precise point in sin's progress does it become impossible to repent? Both the critic and the curious are wrong. Our place is not to question or to comprehend, but to tremble before a God who can justly make sinners deaf to the very call to repentance. This is what... Verse 25 is saying to us, and it's a warning to every person in this room this morning. Do not put off repentance another day. If you have not repented and turned to Christ in faith, do not presume upon the patience and mercy of God that it will be available to you tomorrow because it might not be. Repent now before you find yourself at the bottom of the spiral 
This is also a call to us as a local church. We saw this in Hebrews, but it bears repeating. Hebrews chapter 3, and I say that because we went through Hebrews not too long ago. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 reminds us, Take care, brothers, us together here in this local church. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews chapter 3 says we need to look around. The people sitting to our left and our right and in front of us and behind us. Hebrews chapter 3 says you and I bear responsibility to one another to be sure that we don't end up where Hophni and Phinehas ended up. That you and I are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why we need each other. That's why we need the local church, brothers and sisters. But here's the glorious good news. I want to be sure that we're all resting in this morning. Remember, Eli asked his son a provocative question. If man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Well, we have some glorious good news, brothers and sisters. God sent a man to intercede for us. He sent a man, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place and intercede before the Father. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. He is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Christ came to be our mediator. So that's the answer to the question that Eli asked. Who is there? There's Jesus. So repent of your sin. When you've sinned against God, when you've blasphemed his name, when you've rebelled against him, when you've committed high-handed sins, there is an intercessor in the person of Jesus Christ who laid down his life on the cross and bore the wrath that you and I deserve, the wrath that Hophni and Phinehas are going to have to face will not come on you if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Jesus will intercede for us. In fact, when you trust in him, it says that he daily, every single moment, sits at the Father's right hand, interceding for you and for me. So yes, God will judge he will judge the sins of the unrepentant. And it is an exercise of God's faithfulness when he does so. To hold corrupt leaders accountable for their wickedness. But the good news, of course, is that he also will forgive all who repent and come to him in faith. And I just remind us that even that repentance is a good, merciful gift from God himself. And that brings us to the final display of God's faithfulness in this passage. I want us to see that God provides, even in the midst of the corruption, God provides. Look there with me at just one verse, verse 26, as we conclude. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Over and over and over again, the author of Samuel wants to rescue us from the brink of desperation. <laughs> and he says, look, God has not given up. He's continuing to provide. And there's this young man, Samuel, that God is making ready. All the attention, right? All the attention is on the corrupt leaders. Right? Everybody saw it. Everybody knew it. It would be easy to despair. Very few people would have known about Samuel in the temple, in the background, being prepared by God. But guess what? God was still doing it. Quietly raising up this boy, and he's growing in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. You see, we've been reminded of this in Hannah's prayer, and here we see it again, that God works in unexpected ways. He's quietly raising up someone who will rescue his people from the Philistine invasion and will anoint King David eventually from whom our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will come. This is how God works. And it's even how we see him working in Luke chapter 2. 
We have one scene of Jesus as a young boy when he's 12 years old in Luke chapter 2. It's if you grew up in church, it's that well-known story where Jesus uh, gets separated from his parents, intentionally separated from his parents, and he's in the temple, and they're wondering, where in the world did Jesus go? And they look for him for days, and they end up finding him in the temple, and he basically says, why isn't this the first place you looked? I'm in my father's house. And it says he was there listening to the teachers and questioning them. And his parents find him, and they come to this understanding with the 12-year-old Jesus. And the end of the passage, Luke 2, verse 52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Here in the middle of the Roman occupation, when all seemed perhaps hopeless, God was quietly raising up a Savior who would redeem a people from himself from every tribe, tongue, and language. Even in the midst of corruption, in the midst of occupation, God is still faithful. He is working on behalf of his people. Remember, throughout the New Testament, the leaders of God's people in that day are described as a brood of vipers. Jesus tells them their father is the devil, and yet God was faithful. And he brought Jesus into the world to die in our place and to victoriously rise on the third day. So therefore, I just want to say to you, don't give up on the church because of the failure of people. God remains faithful, even in the midst of unfaithful leadership. Every step of the way, God sees, God cares, God will judge, and he will provide. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this good news. We're thankful that you have sent Christ. You have redeemed us. We are so thankful for the gift of repentance that you have given us. You have opened our blind eyes to see the glories of Christ. You have removed our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. It is all you're doing. We give you all the praise and all the glory. And Father, as we look around and we're going to be disappointed probably month by month, year after year, when we read about men who are supposed to be leading people to you, rejecting you, failing you, turning away from you, abusing your people, deceiving your people, manipulating your people. Father, I just pray that this passage, that a passage like this will remind us that that is not evidence of your unfaithfulness and that even in the midst of such corruption and wickedness and evil, you're still faithful. You see it. You know what's happening. You will hold those people accountable and you will continue to care for those who are faithful to you all along the way. And you ultimately will provide and raise up men and women in your church to disciple one another to point one another to the truth of your word and you will raise up men to lead your church faithful elders to be used to guard against anyone being deceived by sin and having their hearts hardened so we are thankful for your faithfulness to your people at all times and we pray all this in jesus name amen